This is The Guardian. Today, a trial in Istanbul and a verdict on Turkish democracy. Towards the end of April, in the biggest courthouse in Europe, Istanbul's Justice Palace, defence lawyers stood to give their final statements in a case that's come to be known as the Gezi Park Trials. I cannot forget the tense atmosphere over there. It was a day of mainly statements, defence statements from the lawyers. All the lawyers and all the defendants made amazing speeches, amazing defences. The handing down of the verdict, a couple of days later, was closely watched around the world. It was very crowded. There was a lot of support, both from sort of regular Turkish citizens, but also sort of journalists, lawyers, foreign observers, people from the European Parliament, some ambassadors, I think. Sammy Kent, a Today in Focus producer, was following the case. The defendants, there were eight of them in total, all who you could kind of loosely describe as human rights activists, were accused of violating Article 312 of the Turkish Penal Code. OK, and what's that? It's trying to violently overthrow the government. I mean, coming towards the end, I felt butterflies in my stomach. I mean, I was getting quite nervous, waiting for what the verdict would be. The judges retired for about 45 minutes, as one lawyer involved in the case said to me, about five minutes for each defendant, and then announced their decision. For years now, there have been warnings that democracy in Turkey a member of NATO and a key partner of Europe and the US, is in deep trouble. But even then, a trial of eight activists in Istanbul over the past year has shocked observers and shattered the families of the defendants. Today, we hear from two of those family members left behind as their loved ones fight to stay out of prison and to make sense of the bizarre case against them. From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, the story of the Gezi Park trial and of a democracy in decline. Among the eight defendants in court last month was a veteran architect and activist, Mujela Yapaje. I talked to her daughter, Jansu. My mom, she's 70 years old. She has glasses. Uh, she's blonde, by choice. <laughs> she's short, a little bit chubby, but not too much for her age. And if you ever saw her on the street, you'll see her hugging people <laughs> or kissing people and probably smoking. Jansu also smokes, by the way, including while we talked. We, we wrote, like, joint statements together. 
We went to the demo demonstration together. That was my whole like childhood. We were, I can say, like fighting together all along. Another of the defendants, charged with trying to violently overthrow the state, was a bookish guy in his 50s, Hakan Altenay. We've come to the last session of our course on global civics. Let's review what we have learned and consider what other questions remain. An academic, and not exactly what you'd call a firebrand. I spoke to his wife, Hyundai. So we met when we were organizing a politics school. I was coordinating that program and he was an advisor. I was amazed at how much he listened. And he asked these questions that no one had sort of asked me before about myself. And he understood things about me in a week that, you know, some people I've known for years don't really know. I think that's what I noticed first. And that's still what I love about him the most. Sammy, this trial revolves around protests that happened nearly a decade ago, starting in Gezi Park in Istanbul. What happened there? So in late May 2013, a group of environmentalists heard about plans to cut down trees in Gezi Park to make way actually for a shopping centre. Now, Gezi Park inside Istanbul's historic Taksim Square I mean, it's really not huge, but it is a rare green space in what is quite an exhausting city of 16 million people and a lot of concrete. So the activists decided to stage a sit-in. That got broken up by the police. And if you kind of think back to 2013, it's kind of a new world of social media. The images of police brutality went viral, and then the Gezi Park protests exploded. We heard some security guards were in Gezi Park and trying to, you know, cut down trees, and we all went there together on the same day. It was actually unbelievable. It all came down to this little park where people try to voice their demands. Activists occupied the square, setting up camps, and it all felt a bit different for Turkish politics. Not really the usual suspects, I guess. I mean, Taksim Solidarity, which was the network loosely supporting the protests, boasts over 100 different organisations as part of it, from kind of radical worker parties to the Istanbul Dentist Association. The life that was blossomed or created in Gezi Park was something we thought we would never see people who we thought would never come together holding hands. People were sort of gardening, cooking for each other, caring for each other, you know, painting together. It was very festive. Eventually, the demonstration spread to over 70 cities across the country. Over three million Turks turned out on the streets. So really what started as a kind of little green protest really morphed into something else. 
It became a rally against the police and their brutality. And just hours ago, security forces advanced into the park, firing water cannon and tear gas at the crowds. And inevitably against the government itself. and all sorts of grievances that had built up over Prime Minister Erdogan's then 10 years in power kind of just poured out. And tell me about Prime Minister Erdogan and, and this government that had attracted so much opposition. By that point, he had won three elections in a row, and there was a lot of hope in Turkey and outside it that he was this kind of Muslim Democrat figure that the world had been waiting for. And he was even voted Time Person of the Year in 2011. Wow. But things were kind of tense. The economy was struggling. The government was divided. And there was always about half the country that had never voted for Erdogan and almost never trusted him. And amongst that group, there was a growing fear that he felt kind of invincible and that he could just impose his will on the rest of the country. Okay, so it's in that context that this little green protest explodes, becomes a nationwide movement. How did Erdogan and his government respond? Yeah, so instinctively, uh, in the first few days, Erdogan dismissed the protest as looters. Biz birkaç tane çapulcunun o meydana gelip insanımızı, halkımızı yanlış bilgilendirmek suretiyle. Eventually, they did have to shelve that plan for this treasured shopping mall. But at that point, things had kind of spiralled well beyond just what would happen to the park. It had stopped being about this park and this shopping mall. Yeah, it was too late by then. And after two weeks, the government did send in the police, this was around mid-June, to violently evict the activists and shut off the square. And hundreds of riot police made their way from Taksim Square, backed by water cannons. Those water cannons also have bulldozers on. And at that point... Eight people had been killed in clashes with the police, over 8,000 wounded, and over 5,000 people were arrested. And in the government's response to it, there was something more than just wanting to shut it down. In conservative circles, and also increasingly in the government, and also seemingly in Erdogan's head... There was this narrative about the protest that was growing, that was casting it as something else, something just a bit darker. Jansu, were you at the Gezi protests with your mum? Yeah, uh, I was there with her the whole time. We were detained together, actually spent four nights in... What was that like to spend four days in, in a jail with her? It was an interesting thing to see. I don't know how many mom and daughters go through that. And Hyundai, what was Hakan's involvement in all of this? Like, what was he doing at the Gezi protests? So he wasn't really there. He thinks and reads and writes more than he acts. So this is always what I say. He's not a very action-oriented person. So he actually apparently came to observe with sort of the social scientific mindset once or twice to see you know, what was going on and who was there. He found it very sort of festive. He put a lot of importance to the solidarity that was there. And that was basically it. 
Sammy, once the Gezi protests were cleared, what happened next? The energy from Gezi Park kind of petered out. But that was mostly because Turkey itself changed a huge amount in the years after Gezi. And particularly after, and this was the kind of point of no return, the failed coup against Erdogan and his government a few years later in July 2016, and this very dramatic night where tanks rolled across the street in Istanbul and 250 people were killed. Now, behind the attempt to coup was actually an Islamist group. But after July 2016, there was a purge of the Turkish state and of society, and it just went well beyond the people responsible. Judicial independence was squeezed, opposition politicians were jailed, media channels were closed down. And this crackdown, as rights groups complained at the time, you know, it was just seemingly targeted at anyone who had opposed Erdogan in the past. Hyundai, in November 2018, a year after you and Hakan met, both your lives changed. Tell me about what happened. So around 6 a.m. in the morning, Hakan woke me up and said, the police is here, you probably should wake up. There were about 10 policemen in our house searching the house, looking at basically everything we owned, books, especially sort of everything in our libraries, every kind of paper. They stayed probably for about an hour and then told Hakan that he would be taken under custody. What was that like? It's, it's, it seems terrifying to wake up to find policemen in your house going through your things. I mean, what was that like for you? Uh, it's trauma. You know, it's a form of assault. It's a form of violence. The fact that some men, you know, touch every belonging that you have. I didn't know how to even clean everything. I didn't want to touch anything, but I knew I had to clean everything. And what happened to Hakan? He was taken to a police station. And when we were in the car, we also found out that maybe 15 or 16 other people were being taken into custody at the same time. But we were in uh, complete shock. And what was he accused of? At that stage, we didn't know what he was being accused of. We had no idea. He went into a police sort of questioning and he stayed there for nine hours responding to questions. He was made to listen to a lot of phone tapping. So these people's phones were tapped uh, back in 2013. They were made to listen to those phone tappings and respond to questions about those. Once people started getting questioned, the lawyers started giving us some information. This seemed like it was something related to Gezi. Jansu, in that same round of arrests in November 2018, your mum, Mujella, was also arrested. What were they both accused of? At that time, there was hearsay that she was going to be charged with trying to overthrow the government. And also financing Gezi protests. So, Sammy, these charges culminated in a trial, the one that ended in Istanbul last month. 
We know about Mujella and Hakan, but tell me about the other defendants who were there waiting to hear the verdict. So in the dock last month were Osman Kavala, Mujella Yapuja, Hakan Altanai, and five other defendants. I mean, by November 2018, there had actually been 16 people arrested over the Gezi protests, but several of them have, have since fled the country. It's a kind of a motley crew. I mean, undoubtedly, they all supported the protests in some way. Some of them are friends, and some of them, they say, they don't even know each other. You have the philanthropist Osman Kavala, who funded a lot of cultural projects, art exhibitions, and so on. He was a kind of behind-the-scenes guy. He was on the board of a lot of different organizations, including the branch of the Open Society Foundation, which is the global civil society network founded by George Soros. Hmm, who's often at the center of, of, of conspiracy theories around the world. Exactly. And then you had kind of filmmakers, journalists, lawyers. Hakan Altanai was an academic. He had served on the board at the Open Society as well. But he was mostly a renowned political scientist. I mean, his book on civics had been translated into about five languages. And then you had Mujella Yapaja, who was a long-time activist and architect, who was much more a person kind of pounding the streets and was part of Taxim Solidarity, the group that was very loosely organising some of the protests in, in Gezi. What kinds of charges did these activists end up facing in court? So in early March this year, each of the defendants had posted to their addresses the state prosecutor's final opinion, which is a kind of long written report on what they were accused of. And that was based more or less exactly on a two-year-old indictment filed against the defendants after they were all first arrested. Now, this is one hell of a document. Let me take you through it, Mike. Not all of it, because it's over 650 pages, but it is useful to get a sense of the case against these people. For example, on page three, there's a list of victims or aggrieved parties, you know, of what happened in Gezi in 2013. And there are dozens and dozens of names. But the first one, it says Recep Tayyip Erdogan, and then it adds very helpfully Prime Minister of Turkey. Okay, just in case the judges didn't know. And Sammy, what does the prosecutor's case have to say about the Gezi protests? Yeah, so on the hundreds of pages that follow, it lays out a kind of alternative thesis of what supposedly actually happened at Gezi Park. And it reframes it from a kind of spontaneous, organic protest into basically an organised coup. So, for example, at one point it reads no element of the actions was accidental and that it was a very clear and definite operation with foreign support to bring the Republic of Turkey's state to its knees. Wow. Yeah, and then things just get weirder and weirder. I mean, key, it goes on to this supposed foreign backing, was the Hungarian-American billionaire George Soros and his representative in Turkey, Osman Kavala, who were funding and organising the protests from within through the Open Society Foundation. And it says the other suspects were all part of the same conspiracy. Gezi olaylarında teröristlerin finans kaynağı olan... Memorably, Erdogan himself had referred to Gezi as, as terrorism and that the man behind Kavala was, quote, that Hungarian Jew Soros. Meşhur Macar Yahudisi Soros. 
then the indictment goes on to the so-called evidence, phone transcripts, plane tickets, details of meetings. I mean, really, it's a huge amount of information. But tell me about this evidence, because it, it, it sounds like the indictment is making a lot of you know, very strong statements. This was like a clear and definite operation to bring Turkey to its knees. But how does it actually build the case? So the curious thing is that most of this document is this huge amount of kind of basically random evidence. I mean, if you take, for example, Hakan Altanay, his section of the 650-page document lasts just four pages. And it's mostly phone transcripts of conversations with other defendants. And almost all of these tapped phone conversations happened after the protests. I mean, at times the indictment is just surreal. The text is put in bold print, presumably to indicate something significant. So for Osman Kavala, for example, one section, it's page 175, if you're interested, it details a conversation where someone tells him to wear a gas mask to the protest. And he responds, asking, OK, shall I bring some? And she says, yeah, some gas masks, water, some poacha, which is a kind of sweet Turkish pastry. I mean, is this what it looks like when you finance a coup? So many senior lawyers have commented on the kind of baseless conspiratorial nature of this stuff. And I mean, the irrelevance of so much of the so-called evidence to this kind of crime that's alleged, which is obviously really serious, all kind of evidence of the defendants committing any kind of violent act. These charges were actually based on this illegal uh, tape recordings, listening to their phones and about like overthrowing the government, the all evidence they say they have is a joke that she made to a friend, an old friend, saying her old friend said, oh, I'm too old. I don't have energy to do anything. And my mom replied, oh, where are you going? We are going to see the revolution. Hyundai, can you give me examples of the kinds of things the prosecutors claimed Hakan had done, ways he had acted that were supposedly illegal? Um, so Hakan was the director of Open Society Foundations in Turkey for a number of years. The funny thing is his employment ended with Open Society Foundations in 2009. He remained on the board of it for a number of years after that, but his involvement with the board also ended before the Gezi Park protests began in February 2013. But the prosecutor keeps referring to him as someone who was uh, directing Open Society. There is also no evidence in the indictment that Open Society Foundations at any point in time had anything to do with the Gezi Park protests. And yet the prosecutor keeps insisting that there was something. He probably couldn't find the evidence for it, but there had to be something about it. It is probably worth saying as well, the defendants have already been acquitted once in a lower court a couple of years ago. While the acquittal decision was met with surprise and happiness, the joy was short-lived. That verdict was immediately appealed and the judges who delivered it were disciplined. An investigation against the three judges of the Istanbul 30th Heavy Penal Courts who gave a verdict of acquittal in Gezi trial. And the day after, President Erdogan himself said the acquittal had only come about by some legal manoeuvre. Onun da Türkiye'ye bir manevrayla 
Dün onu beraat ettirmeye kalktılar. He is always talking about the case, the Gezi movement. And we know that my mom and our friends and our those bright, amazing people are right now refugees for a political case that we don't know. And so, more or less since that point, the case has been kind of trundling along with a few complicated twists and turns in the Turkish courts. And since it restarted about a year ago, this trial, we've had several hearings and not a single witness has been called to the stand. Not one defendant cross-examined. There's actually just quite a simple formula that the prosecutor makes his case based on this indictment and the defendants left to respond. Jansu, what was your daily life like? I mean, how did that affect you and your mum to know that she would be facing trial on offences that carry a very harsh sentence? Um, actually, our life didn't change that much. I know it's a weird thing to say. We talked with lawyers, tried to prepare, you know, legal documents, but... We believe there's nothing you can do legally. So you came to believe that basically you didn't have control over this process anymore? Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. This wasn't a just proceeding. This was just a short trial. Did you ever see a moment where she was scared or, or worried for her future? No, no. And we had parties before court dates. We called them aggravated life sentence parties. All of our friends came to our house, talk about politics, drank rakı. We have this Turkish singer, Ajda Pekkan, who was mostly famous in the 60s and said uh, female empowerment songs. We listened a lot of Ajda Pekkan. I've never seen her scared because she always tells us she believes what she does is right. Hande, it's amazing to me that as all this is happening, you and Hakan are still trying to, to move forward. You had a child. What's it been like to go through the, the, the stress of raising a young child, but to have this prosecution on top of it? I mean, I think it's the only thing you can do. The only thing is to keep living, is to keep, is to persevere. And when you know that you haven't done anything wrong, you find, I think, the sense of courage. And Ege, you know, children are our hope. So I think having Ege was, you know, lucky for us during this period because he gave us so much joy and so much happiness and the willingness to continue. Hande, I want to understand what this trial, this second trial was like. During this entire time, no judge ever asked us any questions. So Hakan probably prepared three or four different defense statements over the few sort of months, trying to explain himself. 
The judges mainly play with their phones. They don't even look at the defendants. They, they play with their phones? They play with their phones. They look at their computers. They don't even look at the defendants' faces. You know, if you think about it, uh, our entire lives has been mainly spent thinking about this trial, responding to this trial, responding to this indictment. You know, we've lost hours and days to, you know, try and explain ourselves. And these people are not even listening to us. It was actually really hard thing to witness. You don't have any hope for a fair verdict. Hyundai, on the 25th of April, after three years of twists and turns, the verdict in this case was finally handed down. Tell me about what that was like. Basically what happens is the judges come into the room and once they start reading the verdict, the verdict also is displayed on these computers that the lawyers can see. I remember just looking around and there was a silence. I was looking at the face of our lawyer and Hakan's sister, who was also a lawyer, to understand what was going on. And everyone's face just completely sort of froze. And it was at that moment also that the judge said, you know, Osman Kavala is being convicted uh, lifetime imprisonment and all the others to 18 years uh, for helping aid the overthrow of the Turkish government and they will be uh, imprisoned sort of immediately. 18 years. 18 years. I mean, that's an astonishing sentence. Astonishing sentence. An Istanbul court's decision to jail Turkish businessman and activist Osman Kavala for life. Seven of Kavala's friends were convicted of helping him and each jailed for 18 years. I I couldn't, and I kept, I, I hugged Hakan and I kept saying, how could this happen? How did this happen? People chanted and they were very upset and people cried and people shouted and people screamed at the judges and so on. So it was utter, utter shock. My mom demanded to smoke in the courtroom. <laughs> and there was this fight over that, how uh, she could not smoke or not. And she lighted a cigarette, just waiting for them, for people to take them to jail. And she smoked. Maybe it was the, the first time that someone smoked in that courtroom. I wanted to fight with everyone. <laughs> There was this burst of anger and right now still what I'm feeling is not sadness, not worry, not anything. I still feel anger like to my bones. I tried to actually, you know, not give my mom and my friends. I hugged them and they the security forces or whatever, I don't know, they, they, they pulled us apart. I used my all power to hug them and not let them go. You know, I hugged him knowing that I wouldn't be able to hug him much um, for a while. Um, hopefully I will today. Um, um, sorry. <laughs> you, you, you're going to go and see him today? Yes, Um I will, and it's a, it's an open open visit. So um, 
it's one where you can actually uh, touch each other and hug. The others are, you know, we talk behind a glass window through telephones. He gave us his phone. He gave us his wallet. He said, you know, we'll be okay. Don't worry. Let's take this one day at a time, step by step. And then they told us to leave. And has Ege seen his father in prison yet? No, uh, he will today uh, when we go in. And obviously he's not at an age where he can understand, you know, what a prison is and so on. But I've told him that there was a mistake. And because of a mistake, his father had has to stay somewhere for a period of time that he will not be able to come home, but that we will be able to go there and see him and that we will help him when we go there. We'll help him solve this problem. So, And once he solves this problem, he will come home. Coming up, the Gezi trials may have been a sham, but what does the verdict say about Turkish democracy? I'm Grace Dent, and I am back for third helpings of comfort eating from The Guardian. Join me and more celebrity guests like Big Zoo, James May and self-esteem as we throw the cupboard doors wide open on the comfort foods that have seen them through. This is a niche sexual thing for people. (laughs) Northern women eating carbohydrates. Comfort eating returns on the 17th of May with new episodes released every Tuesday. Comfort Eating with Grace Dent is supported by Ocado. Sammy, what do you think this case and the shocking verdict says about the trajectory that Turkey's been on since those Gezi Park protests in 2013? Yeah, you know, I often wonder whether Turkey kind of goes under the radar. It's a NATO ally, an EU neighbour. It's where millions of Brits go on holiday every year. But, I mean, this is a country that's been transformed and in restricting the freedom of its citizens, the, the right to assembly, the right to free speech, to a fair trial. I mean, incredibly, Erdogan, he's been in power for nearly 20 years. And certainly for younger Turks... I mean, almost nothing better symbolises the kind of fall of Turkey more than Gezi in the the hope that those protests represented. And now, in this verdict, the fate that's befallen some of the protesters who were there. Junsu, what do you think this whole case says about the kind of place that Turkey has become over the past decade? A dark place. A dark place for people who are trying to live in peace. A dark place for people who want to make an environment better place. A dark place for people who believe in law. It became a dark place, and we unfortunately believe that this case was one of the like first 
signs of the things we are gonna go through. I believe it will be become darker, unfortunately, but it, it, it all comes to us, the people, to decide if we want to live in that darkness. And our friends, my mom, all those people did what they had to do to, you know, create a lightness in that darkness right now, why, why they're in jail. It's, we'll decide if, if, if we, we take that fear or not. That was Jansu Yapaje, whose mother, Mujela, is currently serving an 18-year sentence in Turkey. Thank you so much to her and also to Hande Altanay for sharing the story of her husband, Hakan. That is it for today. This episode was produced by Sammy Kent. Sound design by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producers are Phil Maynard and Elizabeth Casson. And we're back tomorrow. This is The Guardian.